I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed on mats. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. Welcome back to the Ensign Podcast. Uh, Blaine here, Luke, and real man-sized Tom Thumb. (laughs) 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 Oh. Does that just smack of false starts or what? No, no, no. I, I mean that we've had some false starts, not that this is one. This is a great start. Guys, we're going to keep rolling because we've had a hard time getting this episode off the ground this morning uh, because we are talking about craft and we are talking about mastery through a, through a contentious vessel uh, between the members of the Anson staff and vendors, contractor here, guest. Non-staff member Luke. Uh, Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we sort of came into this episode via this question of, like, what does it mean to develop your soul? Something we talk about constantly, but we don't, you know, every week have an example of a practice that actually sort of expands or provides some context for what it means to develop your soul. And... Uh, We're going to start this one with an interesting bit of Greek mythology for you guys. Fantastic. Iris, the messenger of the gods, who you're very familiar with if you read Rick Riordan's awesome Olympian series, uh, is the daughter of Talmus, who is the god of wonder. It's like kind of a fun idea that Socrates really liked, that actually the transmission of, you know, the heart of God to you comes from the vessel of wonder. Mm. And to sort of jump into that, we are going to talk about poetry today. Why do I feel weird when I say it? I think because it carries a lot of baggage, uh, mostly from Hallmark greeting cards is usually what most people think of when you say poetry or being in high school and being forced to read Shakespeare, which made no sense at that point and probably still doesn't for most people. Yeah. When I hear poetry, I feel pressure and failure all at once. Like I have failed because I am not currently memorizing and reciting poetry to my wife and also pressure because I feel like it's valuable, but it also is behind this wall. Yeah, it has this like untouchable veneer, and yet at the same time we use the word poetry to describe anything that's cultural, like, oh, he's such a poet, or man, that, that sounds such, it's just poetry. And yet to actually access poetry is really hard. Yeah, I feel, my feeling would be I've just walked into a party and everybody stopped talking and is now looking at me when I say poetry, which is confirmed by in the course of reading around for this episode just the critical mass of sort of wan and Hamlet-looking tattooed people, you know, wearing Oxford shoes without socks, smoking cigarettes over typewriters. They look awesome. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, cool. I'm back at your clubhouse. (laughs) Yeah. But actually, 
Luke especially and each of us to varying degrees have had some level of intersection and benefit from this art form. And we're going to use this art form to talk about the practice, as we said already, of developing your soul. And Luke, kicking to you, what is square one when even definitions of poetry that are helpful to you, obviously there's a lot of definitions, but ones that you personally are attracted to, and then, you know, where your engagement with this uh, illegitimate literary form began. Yeah, so I think a helpful definition for me when it comes to poetry, because if you search poetry, you're going to see a lot of very different art forms that are all kind of called poetry, and so it's kind of hard to fit it all into one box. For me, my helpful category is just uh, language distilled. So thinking about the difference between whiskey and beer. Um, Whiskey, there's not a whole lot there, but it packs quite a punch. And so I think poetry is uh, as few words as possible to convey the most amount of meaning. And in so doing is able to escape some of the pitfalls of language and tripping over yourself. Where I first fell in love with poetry was at as an English major. Um, you kind of have to take survey courses. They again, like just like high school, so this is true in that context as well. You just kind of have to read poetry. English teachers force you. Um, at, at some at some point, when I started reading contemporary poetry and modern poetry, it began to speak to me in ways that nothing else had before stirring something in my soul that I'd only felt in other contexts of rushing or brushing up against beauty. And that started my love affair. So as we talk about poetry, I feel the temptation to just box it in the art category. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of artists on this podcast of visual art and film, um, musicians. And so there's this kind of category of engaging your mind and engaging art are important. And I can feel the temptation to kind of dismiss poetry because, well, I've been practicing these other forms and yet there's something important about engaging the art of words, Mm -hmm. of the art of language and pulling us into that as, as, as we'll dive into and how it relates to our soul. But like we are so crafted by language Mm. I mean for crying out loud we have the Bible and the God who speaks as these deep roots of identity and so how much more important than an art form that is word centered matters right I mean it's an art form that is built on the idea of communicating and yet what it's exploring is how do you say what's impossible to say how can you capture the ineffable while using communication. Hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. My favorite definitions actually is T.S. Eliot's, and it appears inside the four quartets, and he just says, poetry is language approaching silence. Hmm. Which is funny, because T.S. Eliot, very prolific guy, so it's safe to say he never actually landed in silence, but just kept approaching it yeah. over and over again. Yeah, and I mean, you can be a poet and be approaching silence and reach gibberish. So that's a kind of silence for you. You just stop making sense at all. It's a fine line. I know that we've asked you to sort of collect poems that you think are uh, interesting 
points of entry into comprehending poetry. But I still want to start with like the via negativa because Como? the uh, just you know the apophatic way. The Como? Como again. <laughs> 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 just start with, you know, you approach any form and it is actually sometimes easier to just name some things not to do. It's like a classic rhetorical act of clear yourself a little space of wave a wand. Someone wants to begin increasing their capacity to use and apprehend language and they're going to do it through writing poetry. What are some things that you would just be like, don't, don't just do this or don't do this at all or beware of? Yeah, totally. I think a baseline of how to enjoy anything at all, you have to start by learning about it. I didn't enjoy watching soccer at all. It literally put me to sleep until I started to learn the rules. And when I actually learned, okay, I know what's going on here, I could enjoy it. I had the same, a similar experience coming over here. I was listening to jazz because my normal radio station was trying to get me to give them money. And my thought was, this is probably good. I have no idea why or how, but it probably is. And so, I mean, just like jazz, you have to learn music to actually enjoy jazz. I think it's similar with poetry. And so just the grace that it's not going to be immediately breathtaking. You know, the first poem you pick up is not going to be like, wow, this is speaking to me on such deep, profound levels. I've achieved enlightenment. Yeah. That's what it was like for me, though. (laughs) It can happen. It can. I'm just kidding. I like your way, though, of listening to jazz music. It would be like getting a poetry book because all the other books were gotten from the library. Yeah. Uh, This is just the only one they had. Yeah. (laughs) I think everything that we enter into, to be very obvious, requires... Um, sort of denying the desire for fast rewards. Mm-hmm. And like, I can't remember if it's the self or it's envy specifically that G.K. Chesterton... Oh, it's actually, it's that part of the self that is the flesh that G.K. Chesterton says must not be allowed a moment's rest from everlasting death. Mm. And like, I love that line. It's so insane. Yeah. But there's the part of you that's going to come out engaging this and everything else that's going to want it to be easy and that will stop you right away from ever liking this foundational maybe oldest of all human art forms yeah right but there are some good starting points so as you asked earlier what are some navigational tools to access poetry uh rule number one for me is avoid poems that rhyme at first Um, we're really used to poems that rhyme because we all read children's books. And because of that, if you read a poem that rhymes, you're automatically going to give it a rhythm in your head and a tune, and it's going to start sounding really childish and boring. So no matter how hard you try, if it rhymes, you're going to turn that poem into a children's book and you're going to hate it. Rule number two, when starting to read new poems, you kind of need like a Uh, What is your northern star? What is the thing in the poem that is giving you orientation to what is being said here? Uh, And the easiest one is narrative. So most poems will be telling a story that is the original form of a poem was a way, an easier way to memorize stories in the oral tradition. And that's where poetry started. And that's still true today where we're still communicating narratives, but in the poetic art form. And that is the easiest 
kind of guiding post to get through some of the difficult language and imagery and metaphor. The type of artistic language we think about when we think about poetry is hanging on to that narrative. So figuring out, okay, there's a story here. What is it saying? Once you have that down, the rest of the language is not going to be getting in your way. It's just going to be increasing enjoyment. You already know what's going on. So then you can just enjoy, ah, that's a lovely image. I love the narration piece because there have been times for me when a genre is easier for me to enter into than another. Um, Poems about the sea will retain my attention longer. Even if I'm not understanding every single poem, I still like the, the stories that are being told and I'm able to stay in with it instead of maybe about the Midwest or things like that. Yeah. I feel like we need to just throw out there, maybe start by avoiding E.E. Cummings and (laughs) people that are playing with the art form. Yes. Avoid experimental poetry. (laughs) Don't start with the people that are breaking the rules and don't start with the really hard ones. Yeah. You say narrative and my mind went right away to all these poems that I've encountered that I'm like, there's no narrative on purpose. Right. And I go, if you can't identify it, you actually, you know, sort of need to swing over to poetry, for example, narrative poetry, where the narrative is actually very easy to identify. Right. You know, like, you love B.H. Fairchild, ditto me, and he's just this long storytelling poet where the story can drive you through, and then you can advance from that into, like, you begin learning the rules by long-term engagement, and then you begin to look at people breaking the rules and are able to go, oh. Totally. I can't wait to have that moment. Yeah, totally. I remember um, I got to go to a reading with B.H. Fairchild, and he began it with, this is not a poetry reading. This is story time with Uncle Pete. And that was awesome. (laughs) I just like him even more. I know. (laughs) I wonder how he settled on the name Pete. Well, this is something that I think people can understand in another category. I remember as I was trying to become more of a responsible young man I wanted to like dress the part and I didn't Mm. want to keep wearing the same t-shirts I've been wearing since high school and this is about as far into this world as I got but it was same rules other arena you don't get to break the rules of fashion until you understand the rules of fashion you just get to go into a carpenter's workshop and be like okay we're just gonna throw all this out the window but have no idea how any of the tools work like you would probably agree with those and so it feels really kind and really simple that the same rules would apply in this arena. Right. My boy, Tim Ferriss, my boy and close personal friend. Actually, Blaine was at a reading where, uh, with Tim and he said, this is just story times with Uncle Timmy. Story time with Timmy. I raised my hand in the back of the 5,000 people. <laughs> um, that story did not happen. But he is also a learning guru and he'll say over and over that the first piece is can you identify what the basic building blocks of the discipline are Mm. and then can you sequence them in the right order you've named poetry narrative as a core building block language distilled tell me luke other building blocks foundational pieces of this medium what would you name if you had to point to two or three others um the fancy version comes from Ezra Pound, the foundational modernist. Fields in relation. Um, you have different images that are relating to each other. The most simple way to say it is things are like other things. I've often found that to be true. Yes. 
Um, Have we met before? You look <laughs> so similar. Things are like other things. So in a poem, you're going to have this field of images where you're presented with these different images. Sometimes they, it'll be um, a stanza and it'll be presenting one image and it'll be laboriously described. Other times you'll have an image and it'll come at you in two words. But those images are always going to be in contrast to the images around it. And they're going to come in um, a procession at you in the poem. And that's going to be a lot of the building blocks for most poems is building these um, different images. They're going to be very descriptive images. And then where the meaning is going to come from is how they relate to each other. Do you have examples with you? I have lots of examples. I'm going to just read a really simple entry point into the world of poetry. Um, Louis Gluck. The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, exactly. The the Psalms. Um, (laughs) Poet laureate of the United States at one point. Um, Her most favorite or most famous book of poetry, The Wild Iris, um, where she follows the transitions of seasons starting in early spring to late summer. Um, and is speaking from the perspective of plants, which is fun. That's awesome. Yeah, so this is the wild iris, and then I will describe some of the um, building blocks that come in the poem. It's cool that she's writing about plants because Poet Laureate is just the poet wearing the laurels. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I have some laurels in my home. (laughs) I am the Luke Laureate. The wild iris. At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out. That which you call death, I remember. Overhead, noises, branches of the pine shifting, then nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the dark earth. Then it was over, that which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak ending abruptly the stiff earth bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I tell you I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the center of my life came a great fountain, deep blue shadows on azure seawater. So in this poem, Louis Gluck is just describing what it could be like to be a perennial plant, one that blooms during the summer and then dies and goes back into its bulb only to come back again. So that idea of at the end of my suffering, there was a door. So I did die, but then I came back. So this image of resurrection and a plant. And when I was talking about those images and fields of relation to one another, Um, You have overhead noises, branches of the pine shifting. So you just have moving pine. And then the next image is the weak sun flickered over the dry surface, talking about the earth. So you have those two images, the trees and then the dry earth. And then those are later put into relationship to birds and what I took to be birds starting in low shrubs. So you have these different natural images in relation to one another. And those are kind of the building blocks of the poem itself. You have a very simple narrative, actually, of a flower blooming, dying externally, coming back after winter. And you have images of nature and the earth, which provide the vehicle for these thoughts on death 
resurrection, the soul and a voice. Yeah. Which is really haunting. Yeah. I mean, we have these, these core questions of existence of what is it like to die? What it, would it, what could it be like to come back again? I'm immortal. So that's not a question for me. <laughs> well, I have a poem for that as well. <laughs> Immortality. Oh, speaking of that question, hang on, are you going to read another one? No, I was just going to keep going. Oh, keep going. Yeah, I was just saying, so you have these uh, eternal questions, but it's in the context of beautiful imagery. Uh, from the center of my life came a great fountain, deep blue shadows on azure seawater. That's just talking about the deep blue flower of an iris. It's those moments that touch on the wonder piece, mm. which is, that's just freaking beautiful. Yeah. And... There's a very famous line by Albert Einstein, familiar because people put it on bumper stickers. He said, someone who can no longer pause to wonder and stand in awe is as good as dead. Mm. Their eyes are closed. And there's something about on purpose engaging beautiful uses of language to simply practice that discipline of beholding and wonder. Like, that's a beautiful description of a sky. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily need to, it is more complicated, but that piece also feels sufficient. Yeah. Okay, speaking of dying, I'm going to come back with an, uh, a poem that's even more accessible than that one, I think, uh, by Kevin Gooden, another poet we both like, because he is a rancher. <laughs> and because I heard him read once and he told a very funny story of not getting hired at a university. <laughs> um <laughs> Though he's a genius. His writing is so beautiful. He talked about a family member was dying. He was the only one who was available to go care for this person. And then in one of the coolest names for a collection of poetry, basically the only reason I think right now that I would attempt a collection of poetry is so that I could title it. Yeah. Because uh, the titles are usually so awesome. But he titled this collection In the Ghost House Acquainted, which is really, really cool. And or like an 80s metal band. It's yeah. like an alt album. It, <laughs> but he just has this beautiful poem that I'll send to people when they are experiencing something because it, it touches just on the territory of like eternity in an mm. incredible way. It's a very short poem and it's titled, His Voice Had Grown Softer Each Day. I need you to get me a ticket, he said. For what? I asked, waking at the foot of his bed. For the train, he said. They say I need a ticket. Except for the small lamp, the room was dark. The air was cool and clear, the first night of September. Do you know who they are, I asked. And he said, oh, yes. They are smiling and waving. I haven't seen them for so long. They want me to climb on board. I need my ticket. I want to give you a ticket, I said. Hmm. That's what there is to that poem. Yeah. Is it a depiction of a holy scene uh, communicated in a beautiful way that just conveys and then also shares that experience of someone on the edge of eternity and what that, what those in-between moments are like. It's yeah. extremely beautiful. It is. Okay, so we've bumped up against something. Other mediums you can kind of binge. People figured that out and that's why Netflix releases TV shows all at once because you can just park yourself and watch four hours of TV. Albums are meant to be listened to all the way through. Poems strike me as more like Lectio Divinas like you 
pick one mm. and you sit with it for a while. Totally. I had a professor that said you haven't read a poem until you've read it twice. And so there's this idea where you're like, you're supposed to sit with it. And I think too, that's why I like the metaphor of comparing poetry to whiskey works well too, because it is, it's strong and too much of it would be inundating and you'd, your palate would be overwhelmed. And you'd be poetry drunk <laughs> and it's not legal to drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've yeah. done before, not great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Too much poetry, too uh, fast. I like what you named to Sam and that Mako mentioned this in a recent episode and it stuck with me where most art forms in our cultural moment put you in the position of a consumer or actually we have a cultural moment that puts us in the position of consumers and therefore we relate to most art as consuming and we you know binge watch even what might be beautifully made television shows but there's tremendous value in engaging mediums and practices that just hold out on you. Mm. Like it, it reminds me of like the integrity of a person who just doesn't, you know, give their friendship easily. Mm. That there's something about doing things that require you to work to get to enjoy them. That's sort of a cure to a moment that wants to give you the enjoyment without the work. To reference the World Series from Ransomed Heart. Mm. Give us another one. It can be about a plant, or it can be from one of the other book stacks that you have here yeah. on the table. Yeah. Sometimes when I talk about poetry, I kind of feel like um, I'm like the crazy hermit that's come down from the mountain to tell about what I've seen in the stars. That's a lot of actually how we interact with you, <laughs> and outside of poetry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so there's something to that. Um, so this next poem I want to read, I don't know if this would be helpful, but just to break down some categories that how I think about what makes a good poem, you know, because I think that starts with the foundation that poetry is good, um, but maybe going into, okay, why is it good? What makes it good? Might be a little helpful just to have in the back of our head. So uh, the things that I like in poetry, uh, just breaking it down to three adjectives and their different definitions. The first being vivacity. Exactly what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, vivacity. So meaning briskly alert, energetic, active, intense, brilliant, fresh, imparting spirit. So having a poem that has something there to it, it has an energy, has a life to it. It doesn't look like a dead jellyfish on a table when you interact with it. The next one would be tension. Uh, so I think the poem that I just read from The Wild Iris is an excellent example of tension as it's comparing life and death and putting those two things in tension. Um, and that's where the action is, is when there's tension created by those different images. Um, and then the last one is just deliciousness, um, which just simply means it affords great pleasure. It's delightful. And so looking at language that simply delights. Uh, looking at images that are just beautiful. You don't have to think about it. It just is that way. So this is a poem that I think captures the idea of deliciousness because it's not profound. It's talking about beaver ponds. Oh, I like this one. Yeah, so it's not like, it's not resurrection. It's not life and death. It's simply just talking about beavers and yet the language is delicious. It's called Beaver Moon. We made our home in the place where the water slowed. Yes, we flooded the plains until the landscape bloomed with wet. We stopped the tub. We drew a bath and called the river to its new, quieter life. Ring builders, kingdom carved. 
At the end of the line, we made our own place. Sure, from above, it looks like a snaking tail headed by a circle. From here in the mud, it doesn't look like that at all. It looks like a world, like a cleared space, like everything that's left when the trees soften and come at last crashing. It's about beavers. Did you say who the author was? Uh, Franny Choi. Franny Choi, uh, published in the Poetry Magazine. So, Luke, you, you gave that one as an example of deliciousness, of yes. language that just delights. What are some parts of that that jump out to you? Um, right. So, again, just talking about beaver ponds and yet the language of like everything that's left when the trees soften and come at last crashing. This, the structure of that sentence um, is grammatically problematic, but it's so enjoyable to think about trees softening as them. Actually, if they don't really soften, they just eat at them. And then having the trees come crashing, but it's at last, like there's been a waiting period. And so I find that just delicious of talking about trees and yet the structure of that is engaging and kind of um, tantalizing a little bit. Mm. The description of the pond as kingdom carved is also awesome. One of the coolest adverbs of all time. Yeah. You know, when I think about it more, I don't ex- don't exactly know what that's describing, but feel in this case, okay. Like I'm not just being, you know, guided down random language tracks. You're right, right. Because it makes sense because it takes place in the middle of this poem that's talking about these beavers making a home for themselves. Um, that's kind of where it starts is that we are making a home. And then so we have this idea of kingdom carved. It's this small place, but there's something royal here and it's been diligently made. Carved doesn't mean slapped together. You know, you think of a sculpture when you use the word carved. And so you put those two words together and all of a sudden you have this sense of something much bigger than the sum of its parts. So good. Uh, it does, again, elicit wonder and take us back to that place of something that is typically mundane that you're used to maybe driving by and seeing several love when you do see beaver ponds. Hopefully you stop and appreciate them. But even the posture or the line and that of like this may look like a serpent with a a circular head, but that's not what we see at all. We have a world here. Mm, totally. All of that pausing, filling the bath. It, it is this wonderful, like you are, all of a sudden we are all beavers. Yeah. I never, have never been a beaver before. And I've never wanted to be anything more. <laughs> yeah. Like it gives so much meaning and significance to mm. like building a space for yourself. Yeah. It mentions, it draw, calls attention to a really important artistic distinction, which is, I think, one of the issues that most people who went through adolescence have with poetry uh, is that it seems like, because there are confessional poets, like a confessional medium, like, mm. you know, autobiographical journaling with uh, stranger than usual language. And yet you can put this track, which is actually like when the art form stops being about expressing an individual person, which is fine, but actually adds the dimension of uh, like holding out to people a shared experience. Like, Yeah, I think one of the most powerful things about poetry is getting you to see something that you haven't been able to see before. 
you know, so it's like Sam was saying with the beaver ponds, you don't really stop. I don't stop on the side and look at beaver ponds, but I think poetry has that capacity to uh, reintroduce the world to you as the magical place that it is. Since we're talking about beavers, I would be remiss. This doesn't have anything to do with poetry, but not to share two really great things about beavers. First of all, do you guys know that before... Their teeth... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No. Before they build a uh, twig dam, they build an un- an, an unseen underwater rock dam. What? Yeah, so they actually build a foundation of river stones. Also, uh, spe- all other species love beavers because... Without beavers, you're not safe because beavers create deep pools to hide in. You know, they regulate the passage of even sediment downstream, which makes the water healthier for fish. A landscape without beavers is kind of like the Wild West. Yeah. Before, like, the law clerk arrived to be like, okay, no more shooting each other. In fact, no guns in town. The simple rule is going to clear that up. You don't have to make the decision whether or not to pull it out. That's awesome. I've got one more. You might have one more. But just talking in the space of wonder and also uh, communicating something in a way that uh, like leaves something to us as readers and like pulls us in in the way that, you know, we teasingly mentioned the Psalms, but like, yes, the Psalms, they are participatory. All of this counts for them. And it's worth developing this capacity even to be able to enjoy the radical portion of the Bible that is written as poetry. Totally. This is a contemporary poet, Mary Carr. I started liking her for her autobiography. She's also a dope poet, Catholic, and she has this poem about the incarnation and then what it means like to carry Christ in us that is one of the most incredible expressions of the incarnation plus being rescued into Christ ever that I've read. It's titled Descending Theology, Christ Human. Such a short voyage for a god, and you arrived in animal form so as not to scorch us with your glory. Your mask was an infant's head on a limp stalk, sticky eyes smeared blind, limbs rendered useless in swaddle. You came among beasts as one, came into our care or its lack, came crying as we all do, because the human frame is a crucifix, each skeletos born a lifetime. Any wanting soul lain prostrate on a floor to receive the poured sunlight might, if still enough, feel your cross buried in the flesh. One has only to surrender, you preached. Open both arms to the inner, the ever-present embrace, which props one up, outreaches every grasp. It's in the form embedded, love adamant as bone. The miracles, not just that you became us, but also those breathed-in instants allotted to us each, even poor brother Judas, when one relinquishes self and will and want. Then you're laid bare in us, and for some briefly gentle eye blink, we bloom and are you. Mm. That's gorgeous. And I think, too, like, reminds me of why you do kind of need to take your time with poetry is that like the first phrasing or image or idea that strikes you won't let you go. Um, and so, I mean, I made it to uh, the eyes smeared line. The eyes smeared blind. I got that line. I couldn't, I couldn't listen <laughs> yeah, to anything yeah. else because I was so captured by that line. Your cup that is you'd... full. Everything just spilled. Yeah, out I know. It's <laughs> like filled so fast. And then, 
You know, so you really do have to take your time and enjoy. Absolutely. The other thing I love in this poem is sort of the ability to startle with things that we've grown accustomed to because, you know, she ends with that line of, we bloom and are you? And, like, it's sort of offensive in some way of, like, oh, what are you saying? And being, like, how accustomed have we grown to, like, Christ in us being our hope of glory? And how accustomed have we grown to, like, what it means to have Jesus in our place? Mm. Like, be our hope of rescue. Yeah, the startling nature of that poem and of all of many poems, at least certainly the ones we've been hearing in this podcast, I think is not to be dismissed. It feels different than the wonder. Um, mm. It feels like part of their value. I know that when I read something longer, I kind of get into a rhythm and language feels familiar and you do find that author's way of speaking and you can go pages and forget what yeah. you've been reading and maybe that feels like getting caught up in a story, but often I will use books as sort of like an escape from this world for a little mm. bit, which we kind of touched on and we can use lots of things to escape the world. Poetry though is like really helpful in, it's not a mirror because it's not a perfect reflection. It's someone else's words and thoughts, but and yet it is some kind of reflection, a means of seeing our world, ourselves, whether it's a beaver pond or in this case, the incarnation, like from the profound to the mundane, that I think is a, it's a massive place of value for us. Yeah. And I think too, is another reason why poetry is sometimes hard is because it just access places in you that coast, um, longing, desire. Um, and sometimes that can be challenging to have that be stirred when it's much easier for it to like just be dormant. That names for me one of two lone outstanding points that I have when I, when I was coming to this conversation. You talk about things in you being stirred. You know, it's actually interesting why one of the reasons that I'm irritated with poets is because of the um, special position they seem to claim towards what they would call, but I would not, sometimes like the human condition or human experience or like soul. And just kind of go, okay, okay, okay. It's true that a person who writes poetry isn't like a special organism with like a unique and higher engagement with the heart. But it actually is true that someone who is establishing practices to regularly engage the heart is sort of as a matter of course, like going to be a bit better at it. And that actually can be read as invitation mm. of, do you want to regularly sort of probe these waters a little bit maybe to just be able to mm. yeah that's well said do you have one more for us yeah sure uh this poem i grabbed as an example for one of my adjectives of just vivacity of just being alert and filled with a certain kind of energy this poem is by dana smith uh, from his collection called don't call us dead it is exploring a sort of afterlife for young african-american men summer somewhere somewhere a sun below boys brown as rye play the dozens and ball jump in the air and stay there boys become new moons gum dark on all sides Beg bruise blue water to fly, at least tide, at least spit back a farther or two. I won't get started. 
History is what it is. It knows what it did. Bad dog, bad blood, bad day to be a boy, color of a July well spent. But here, not earth, not heaven, we can't recall our white shirts turned ruby gowns. Here, there's no language to officer or law, no color to call white. If snow fell, it'd fall black. Please don't call us dead. Call us alive someplace better. We say our own names when we pray. We go out for sweets and come back. <laughs>